You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 110. Before we get into the podcast, I wanted to get a little bit personal uh, with everybody. Probably won't notice this, but I'm airing this podcast a day later than usual. And it's been a bit of a surreal week for us. Uh, my wife and I wanted to take a break from living in the big city, so we rented a lovely place in wine country here in Northern California. And we were enjoying the country living so much that we extended our lease for a month. Uh, last week, uh, there was these rare lightning storms here in California, uh, which triggered wildfires uh, that have been now raging for uh, over eight days and have burned over 300,000 acres in the area that we were staying at. And that's just uh, one of the wildfires going on in the whole state of California. Uh, last week, the uh, area we were staying at was ordered to evacuate, so we grabbed our belongings, our three dogs, and we were out of there as fast as we could. Uh, luckily, we just were able to head back home here in San Francisco. Uh, so I feel terrible uh, for those people who are worried about uh, losing their homes and have been displaced. Um, I had my computer and podcast here all boxed up and was working out of my laptop. Uh, we were hoping that uh, the evacuation would be lifted in two or three days. Um, but we're not going on for a week, so I finally I decided to set up my computer so I could edit this podcast and get it out to you, uh, even though it's a day late. Uh, but like I said, we have it easy. Sure, uh, we still have a lot of our stuff in that house, but for us, it was just a rental, so we could just walk away and go back home here in San Francisco. Uh, for thousands, it's not that easy. There's a thousands of, of people that are uh, misplaced and are worried sick that their uh, place is going to burn down or their place has burned down. And thousands of people look to the Red Cross uh, for help, uh, finding shelter, helping with their pets, dealing with uh, being displaced uh, during a pandemic, uh, which makes things even worse. Um, so if possible, uh, please visit redcross.org or, or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Uh, you can also text the word CA Wildfires, all one word, to 90999 to make a $10 donation. Uh, donations enable the Red Cross to prepare uh, for and respond to and help people recover from these disasters. Uh, the, this includes uh, providing food, shelter, relief supplies, emotional support, and other assistance. Uh, ensure your donation helps people affected by the California wildfires by choosing that option on redcross.org forward slash donate or by calling 800-RED-CROSS. Uh, or like I said, if you text the word CA wildfires, all one word, to 90999, a $10 donation will be made uh, for the people in the California wildfires. So if you can do that, I appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the podcast. So in this episode, you'll be meeting uh, Lydia Kang, an author of historical mysteries, young adult and nonfiction books, as well as poetry. Uh, she graduated from Columbia University and New York University School of Medicine, completing her residency and chief residency at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. She's a practicing physician who has gained a reputation for helping fellow writers achieve medical accuracy in fiction. Her poetry and nonfiction have been published in JAMA and several of the other prestigious uh, medical journals out there. Uh, she currently lives in Omaha with her husband and children. And her latest book, Opium and Absinthe, is a best-selling historical mystery set in New York City in 1899. Uh, the author masterfully met blends genres in her novels, so I was excited to talk to her about that, as well as her writing process, uh, her work in medicine, the current state of this pandemic, and its parallels to the one in 1918. We had a, a lot of great conversation. So stay tuned for my interview with Lydia Kang, coming up right now.
Uh, hi, everybody. Alan Peterson here with Meet the Thriller Author. And today I'm happy to have on Zoom Lydia Kang. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. You have such an interesting background. So you're a physician and now you're writing best-selling novels. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a windy road. I, I guess I kind of started about 10 years. So I was about eight or nine years into my um, medical career and I... Um, I joined a, a writing group with a bunch of other doctors and we started writing poetry and fiction and nonfiction. And I just kind of took a huge leap of faith after doing this for about a year or two and just decided to try writing novels. Like I kind of can't believe I actually did that. <laughs> but it's amazing how supportive the writing community is. Like really people are really great about trying to lift each other up and support each other when you're doing something scary and creative. And so I just sort of went with that energy and I just, I gave it a try and that's how it started. Yeah. It is a great writing community. I'm always amazed about that too. Even like if you're quote unquote competitors, everyone still helps you out. And Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much from, from everybody. And, um, you know, I learned that uh, you, you didn't really need to have to go through, like you didn't necessarily need to go to graduate school for four years and get another degree to even start. You could just, mm dive in. And so that's kind of, yeah, it started a little bit of a roundabout way, but yeah. Yeah. Probably a lot easier than uh, going through medical school. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was, but it wasn't in other ways. Cause like the funny thing about medical school is that it's very um, straightforward. Like if you want to become a doctor, it's a very clear path. Like you have to take these courses, you got to get good grades, you got to take this test, and then you got to apply here. So everything's kind of laid out for you. There's really no guessing as to how to do it. Whereas in writing, there's so many avenues to get into the publishing business. You know, you could go to school for that and get a bunch of degrees. You could be a teacher, you could be, um, you could start writing, you know, articles in magazines or newspaper, your local newspaper, or you could do none of that. And just, you could be writing fan fiction. They're just, the avenues are just endless. And so that was why I had a lot of trouble with it mm -hmm. because it wasn't clear to me, like, how, how do you do this? Cause I've never, I never had to do it before. Yeah, that is true. There's not a clear, like you said, yeah, not a clear path. Do this, 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 and that. It's like, it keeps changing too. The publishing world is crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. All the time. Constantly. Yeah. 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 And did you, uh, so I think it's really cool too, because I was looking at your, at your uh, books um, you do like a real mismatch of genres too. So it's not like, you know, cause usually when I heard oh, a doctor, I thought I just assumed you're writing medical thrillers or something, but you went to a whole different Avenue, historical thrillers, a little bit of paranormal in there and crime fiction. So how do you just enjoy all those different genres as a reader when you, and you decided to mix them all up and you started writing? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, um, I kind of write whatever sort of just tickles my fancy at the moment. And sometimes, um, they're really widely varying topics. And so I've written nonfiction, like history of medicine stuff. I've written um, historical fiction, as you said. And I think there's, there's just like a certain kind of weird um, quirkiness to some of the topics that I pick. And maybe that's, that's why I find them interesting. But it's also, it also leads me in like these huge directions. And so you know, I've written a novel about, a, about people on a sentient spaceship and I thought that was really fascinating because ultimately I think a lot, some of it comes down to things like science and biology and medicine and chemistry, and, you know, pharmacology, all those things are really fascinating to me. It was a beautiful poison. Was that like your first uh, into this, uh, in this area, this, uh, this type of book? Yeah. So a beautiful poison 
was my first foray into writing historical fiction. Um, it did sort of have a little bit of a medical background in that um, I had wanted to write um, something that featured Bellevue Hospital, which is where I did my residency and has this huge, long um, history in New York City. Um, and I was also kind of fascinated by Radium Girls, like the whole, um, it was this kind of horrific situation with these um, uh, watch dial painters um, at the early uh, part of last century that got poisoned from Radium. And so I wanted a character who was dealing with that um, and somebody who was fascinated by chemistry. And I threw in the influenza epidemic of 1918 and I threw in World War I because I had a really great teacher in in high school who showed me a lot of world war one poetry. So it's just like, you know, I basically was like cram, cram, shove, shove. I like to kind of stuff it all in there. Um, but that's, yeah, that was the first one. That was my, my first historical book. And you probably would never have thought that after writing about the 1918 uh, uh, pandemic that you would be dealing with in, in real life. Uh, no, I really, you know, it's funny because in, in retrospect, it's like, of course, there is going to be another pandemic in our lifetime. Like it's, it's really obvious now when you sort of look at how things happen in cycles and stuff like that. But, um, but it was still a shock when it happened, but yeah, there was, a, there's a lot of really strange, um, parallels between what happened in 1918 and what's happening now. Cause I'm actually writing about that as we speak for a nonfiction project. So it's been pretty fascinating. Well, that'll be interesting because I always wonder about that too. Like, I mean, were, were they having debates about wearing a mask back in the, in 1918? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There were like, um, like I think like in San Francisco, there was a mask mandate and people were just so upset about, about it. And, you know, just very up in arms about like, why are you making us do this thing? And it's like infringing on our, our independence. It was very similar to what's sort of going on today. Oh, so interesting. Um, yeah, it, it absolutely was. And then there were like, you know, these large gatherings that would happen that people would warn them against, like, don't do that. But the overall though, the um, 1918 epidemic um, in a lot of ways was just this really terrible confluence of factors. It was like the war, it was that particular strain of influenza and it hit young people, which was a very odd, odd thing that they don't fully understand why. But people between like, like 20 and 35 were just dying, like um, at much, much higher rates than normal flu epidemics or other pandemics happen. So it was just a very strange, very horrible virus. Yeah. And especially 100 years ago, I remember, what was the TV show? Oh, the, have you ever seen The Nick? I, I love that uh, TV yeah, show. Yeah, I watched, I watched a bit. Of, not all of it, but I watched parts of it. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy that when they stick their hands with no gloves and, the, and <laughs> when they're operating. and <laughs> They did. They did. There was so much stuff that happened in the history of surgery that's just like, wow, you really did that? Like, I remember there's something I was reading about. Like, there was a doctor, it, it was like somewhere around the turn of the century, who was like, there's no spitting like in the operating room and like people were like yelling at him. They're just like, you're so ridiculous. What are you talking about? What, why, why shouldn't we spit? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And now we can sort of look back on it and be like, it's ridiculous. But, um, but they had to fight through a lot of the social mores and mm. the status quo back then to do, you know, to actually develop um, healthcare in, in a more positive way <laughs> to make it safer. So 
And so can you tell us about your latest book, uh, Opium and Absinthe? Yeah, this book takes place actually in 1899. And um, the story is um, about a young girl. Uh, she's 18 years old and she's very wealthy and very privileged. And she she breaks her collarbone falling off of a horse. And um, while she's recovering, she realizes that her sister is missing and her sister is actually found um, murdered. And the, the manner of her murder is really, really strange. She has puncture marks in her neck and her body's found drained of blood. Um, and so automatically people's thoughts go to, well, must have been a vampire. In 1899, Bram Stoker's Dracula was released in the United States. And so it'd been out for several months by the time. And so there was a little bit of this, well, well, could it have been a vampire? And how could it not, how, like, if it was, why, how could that be? And so the main character, Tilly, um, aside from going through her healing process and then actually an addiction to opium that leads from an injury. She also has to try to really suss out the truth and figure out, you know, who killed her and is there a vampire? And if it's not, why would it look like a vampire killing? So she has to do a lot of a kind of um, investigating on her own. Um, And she's a really, really curious person, except that of course, being a young woman at the turn of the century, she's confined by so many social restrictions. Like she's literally confined by her corset. I mean, like mm-hmm. physically, her dress, everything, what she's allowed to do, go when she can go out, who she can be seen with. And so under those restrictions, she has to still solve this murder. And how much research do you have to put into that? Because you're dealing with the, the historical aspect. Of it. I imagine the readers want making sure that everything is historically accurate. So is that, do you put a lot of research beforehand? I do. I'm, I put a fair amount of research into it. I can't. Um, I can't really begin to fully form the story unless I have a setting and a place. Because you know, um, having the story go from A to B, you have to actually know where A and B are, and if they actually existed at the time, and if it was amenable to the story. And so, I did had to do a lot of research one to figure out if the main parts of my story actually made sense at that time. And then two, to make sure that the actual individual plot points would work within both New York City in 1899 um, and then socially and um, geographically and all that kind of stuff. Like I even had to like very carefully figure out like um, the months and the weeks where these things were going to take place. Because at some point in time, Nellie Bly, who's like this famous um, woman journalist from the late 1800s, um, she, her story is actually interwoven into the story as well. And um, if she were, if she's supposed to exist in that book, I had to know where she was at the time. And if it would make sense for Tilly actually writes her letters, like it would have, it would have to make sense that, you know, she might actually be able to receive the letters. Like, was she in Europe? Was she in the States? All that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of that work that has to go into it before I can even put any words down on the page. Um, so from that perspective, it's um, it's 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 a quite a bit of work um, in the beginning, and then throughout the book, it's also very difficult. So you know, if you're just writing a scene and somebody sort of like looks down the street and they see something like a horse and you know carriage or a buggy or an electric car, you got to figure out like did that, did that happen? What were they called then? And you know, um, did they still call them handsome cabs back then? You know, did they have gas lights? Or were the gas lights actually? petering out and they were using electric lights, but how many electric lights versus, I mean, that's just, so, you know, you go like one paragraph and all of a sudden you're stopped because you got to do more research to figure out how to even write the scene. So it can get kind of, um, it can get kind of entrenched sometimes in the, in the research. 
And do you, what's your writing process like? Do you uh, outline everything or do you sort of just kind of, once you have an idea, you start writing it or? So I generally start with an idea and then I build upon the idea. I just freeform, just write lots and lots of notes, just brainstorming through the concepts. And then um, once I feel like I have a beginning and a middle and an end, and I kind of know how the story is going to go, um, then I have to really do some research and find, make sure that the setting and the geography work and do some more historical research with reading books and just making sure I get all that right. And then once I have that, then I start writing a more explicit outline for the book. Um, and the outline is usually in chunks, sort of like what has to happen in the first tenth of the novel and the second tenth of the novel and making sure that things are building up the way that they're supposed to. Um, and I'm leading readers appropriately astray here and there. <laughs> so I'm like laying those sort of red herrings just just so. Um, and then once I sort of have that, then I, then I will write. So I don't, I don't outline to the point where I know exactly what everybody's going to say in every scene. I don't go that far. Um, I just sort of outline to the point where I'm like, I, I know what has to happen in the next three chapters. Like I just have to make that happen somehow. But so that's about as detailed as I got. I think it's pretty cool too. You've seen that, that uh, your protagonist Tilly is uh, addicted uh is is addicted to opium how would that i mean that's kind of interesting to have the the protagonist uh, in, addicted to that how how did that all come about and tell us about that so um sorry we've dogs uh, barking oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, have, I have three little ones i'm, I'm surprised they've been quiet <laughs> okay yeah no they like to Where go is. and try to they like to attack the bunnies in the backyard they never <laughs> actually so that kind of idea came from, so one of the nonfiction books that I had written is called um, Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. And that book is a history of medicine, a nonfiction book about the, some of the really strange and awful kind of treatments that we used to do. And I wrote the entire chapter on opium. And so I was reading extensively on the history of opium. And I'd found out that, you know, um, when morphine was, um, was discovered and um, when the syringe was actually created, which was like in the mid 1800s. Um, and interestingly, one of the uh, information pieces of information I found was that um, a lot of the initial morphine addicts were women, young women, or like basically rich women in in these cities and towns and stuff like that because the um, the syringe kits were these hand-blown glass and brass kits and these beautiful boxes and you had to be wealthy to even afford one. And so it was very interesting that a lot of women who were treated for things like hysteria and other ailments that weren't necessarily real um, were getting treated with morphine and they were becoming these what they called morphinomaniacs. And so I thought it was very interesting given that, you know, we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic that has been going on for some time. Uh, you know, being a physician, I've, I've had to deal with that firsthand in my practice. And it's been, you know, so it's, it's really tough um, on patients. And, and I, I thought it was, it would be kind of enlightening for people to understand that this is a very old problem and that um, to maybe put, put aside some of their, preconceived notions of what an addict look like, looks like or, you know, is like, you know, I, I start with somebody who's very naive, who's a very good hearted person who falls and succumbs to this really kind of dark pull of using medication as a way of, of healing a lot of things that can't be healed with opium. I was really hoping to be able to do that well 
um, and tie that into the story so that people would realize that in some ways, you know, there's another character in that story. It's the drug. Um, and the drug is sometimes calling the shots and sometimes it's Tilly calling the shots and have to figure out, are they going to come to some sort of detente and come out of this alive or, or are they not? And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how that happened. And is this a standalone or is it part of a series? It is technically a standalone. So all of the historical books, so The Impossible Girl, A Beautiful Poison, and this one, they are all standalone, but they all have a common thread in that they all take place in New York City. Um, They are all historical sort of medical mysteries. And the same family keeps popping up in the story. And so if you read carefully, (laughs) you may have to actually take notes, but if you read carefully, you will see that um, the main character in um, The Impossible Girl is um, a relative of the Cutter family. And that person is a distant relation to Tilly. Tilly's would-be suitor is actually, his last name is Cutter. And um, the main character in A Beautiful Poison is Aline Cutter, um, who was a daughter of one of the characters in Opium and Absinthe, but I can't tell you who. So there is a, there is a string through there. Um, at some point in time, I'm going to have to draw a family tree, but I haven't put it in the books yet. So, but they are standalone, yeah. And so you say you've also written a, a nonfiction. That's interesting. Uh, that Crackery one sounds very interesting. I'm going to go look that up. I'm so, uh, with the whole thing with the pandemic now, I've seen that's coming out now too. People pushing all these silver yeah. Jim Baker. And <laughs> oh my gosh. It's everywhere. And I think that's thing that kind of quackery never dies. It yeah. just, it doesn't. I mean, somewhere in the far, far future when we're like, you know, Star Trek level of like medicine and stuff like that, like it will probably be gone then. But yeah. until then um, it's always going to be around because we don't have a cure for everything. And since we don't yeah. have a cure for everything, it's going to be there. And uh, what's the differences for you uh, between writing fiction and nonfiction? Are there similarities or do you approach them di- uh, completely differently? Um, they are approached really, really differently. So like from even just like conceptualizing the book to trying to sell the book, it's done very differently. And, you know, the audience is very different, but the writing itself is nonfiction. It's very regimented for me. So like, I'll have a chapter on a topic that I have to write. And so I just do a bunch of research, a bunch of reading, and then I have to figure out how to put all that research and reading into like 3000 words that are very entertaining. (laughs) And so, and, um, it's, so it's very, it's difficult. It's a completely different way of thinking. And in some ways it's very gratifying because like when you're done that chapter, you're sort of like, okay, onto a new topic. Whereas with writing a novel, you're just, it never ends. It's like, it feels like it never ends. It's just go on and on and on. So it's just different. I like them both very much, um, but they have different stressors when it comes to writing. So. And did you ever, like when you're going through, when you were younger, you're going through medical school, was it always in the back of your head that you wanted something to try to write a novel or is that the, did that come later? No, uh, I did not know I was going to write a novel in medical school. I, I, tried to do some writing like in college and a little bit after college and it just didn't go anywhere. I, I just, I either didn't think I was good or I was aiming for stuff that was like too high. Like I would, you know, I would write a short story for a short story contest where there was one winner and like tens of thousands of entrants. Like there's no way I'm going to succeed doing something like that. And I, I kept thinking, you know, for quite a long time, which is that I was only really good at science. Like I'm, I love biology, I love chemistry and I like, I really love medicine. And so it just seemed natural. Like, well, put your eggs in the basket where they belong. Like do what you're good at. 
And I didn't think I was very good at writing. And so it wasn't until, again, I was like sort of several years into my medical career that I started writing um, essays on what it was like to practice medicine. And so that was a very easy thing for me because it was like, okay, this is what I know. And it was familiar to me. And I got a couple of things published. And so got my feet wet that way, had some successes, then have a, had a lot of rejections after that. So I just sort of, I kind of kept going. And then little by little, I would get like a, like a poem accepted and another poem accepted and another short story accepted, you know, an essay. And then when I decided that I was going to try to write fiction and like go into writing, writing books, I kind of knew I knew nothing about it. I, I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know anything about the publishing business. And so I just gave myself a lot of sort of grace to be like, look, you don't know anything, just take it all in, learn as much as you can. And I gave myself a very tiny amount of time to sort of find success. And I just blew through that deadline, like, whatever, bye, see ya. <laughs> um, and I just kind of kept going because I enjoyed writing novels. I, the It was just so much fun. I had an amazing time just sort of opening my imagination up to all these what ifs and like, oh, what if I wrote a story about this? And what if I did a story about this? And it was just, yeah, I just, it was a blast. So much fun. And it was a really, oddly, a very um, fantastic compliment to practicing medicine because on the one hand, you have the publishing business and you have your imagination. And on the other side, you have like, you know, helping people, saving lives, but then you have like a lot of the stressors of what it's like to practice and red tape and paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And so weirdly enough, they, they complemented each other and like the stresses of one were always allevi- alleviated by the, <laughs> by the, the positives of the other. And so it worked out really well. And what are some of the authors that influenced you, you as a writer? One of the first authors that I think influenced me, Jennifer Donnelly was a young adult author. And I think hers were some of the first books that I read and they were just beautifully written and so transportive. Some of the, she writes a lot of historical and I just remember being like, wow, this is just beautiful. If I could write something like this, I'd be like so proud. Um, so some of her writing really sort of got me entranced and like, wow, I want I would love to try to try to do something like this. Reading Twilight and the Twilight series was a huge lesson in realizing that I no, I did not need like a, a degree to get a book contract. I could just try. And I was really into young adults at that time. That's when I started reading a ton of it. And sorry, that's my dog moaning in the background. <laughs> so right. So I, I found out fairly early on that like I could actually teach myself how to write. My poor husband in the background going like, stop writing. <laughs> Oh, I had to believe that, especially now that we're all at home. I have three dogs, you know, my wife's out there. So yeah, it's, I know I know how it gets off. If the mailman comes, forget about it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Same with us. Like the doorbell rings and our dogs are like small. And as much as I hate to admit it, they are yappy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, We have two chihuahuas and a Havanese. So I know how that goes. Oh my God. (laughs) We have a Yorkie poo and a she poo. (laughs) So man, the poodle in them, it's just, they're like super barky barky. Um, another person, um, Suzanne Collins. So again, remember I was reading a ton of young adult at the time. Um, Suzanne Collins reading through the hunger game series really was a huge lesson in economy of prose. Like there is not a single sentence in her books that is extraneous and unnecessary. And so a lot of young writers, I think tend to overwrite 
things. They'll say things two or three times to get their point across. So they'll describe something to the point where you're like, okay, okay. Like the tablecloth is red already. I get, I get it. You know? Um, so a lot of the things that I learned, I think I learned from, from reading other books. I would say those were just a couple of, just a small handful um, in the young adult world that sort of had an effect on me in the beginning when I was writing pretty much nothing but young adult. But I mean, I have like, I have a lot of favorite authors and I will most likely forget like thousands and thousands of them. But I tend to read and reread a lot. I'm like a serial rereader. And some of the books that I love from when I was a kid, um, like Jane Eyre, you know, it's, it's not so much, um, it's not always the entire book. Sometimes there's just a single scene or a feeling that I'm trying to replicate in my stories. Like if you can, if I, I'm like, if I can just capture um, the feeling of having to run away and be a survivor, like that is one of my favorite things about that book. And it's, it's a theme that I will come back to sometimes. Like it's a theme that I went to in the November girl when, um, you know, my main character Hector is running away and trying to go to Isle Royal to like survive in this like horrible winter there are a lot of these things that I picked up from these books that I've loved like all my life about that. I've like sort of either, I don't want to say stole them, but like, I guess I kind of stole them um, that I liked putting in my books. So Pride and Prejudice, another favorite. Um, my first book control um, is a science fiction novel and the characters are all loosely based on the Pride and Prejudice characters because there's, there's, I mean, sometimes when you have two love interests that like kind of hate each other in the beginning, <laughs> There's nothing like that kind of tension. It's just fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk on and on and on about this, but there's countless. These are just the ones off the top of my head that I can think of, but there's so many others. Well, yeah, Pride and Prejudice is so amazing. Not only does it inspire a lot of, of writers, but there's like a whole subgenre that I discovered about that, like with zombies or they're writing a mm-hmm. lot different, about different characters in that world. And it's fascinating how, how it is. influential I mean, that I is. I think it's very telling that some of these books that sort of like re-enter your lives or they show up in um, pop culture all the time is because they have these sort of universal truths. And I'm not going to say, you know, that every man is in want of a wife, but and they have these universal truths that really is what all expose these truths within people, between people in society um, in, in so many different ways. And so I think that's what we are all sort of trying to get to when we are writing a book is finding that little kernel of revelation um, that, you know, you've read millions of times in all the different books that you've read, but like you want to try to do that your own way in a way that makes people go, oh my gosh, look at what, look at what just happened, you know? Um, so, and it's, it's so much fun to do that. So what's next for you and uh, for your, for your uh, fiction writing? Okay, so next for me in fiction writing is I'm going to be writing a fourth book, fourth historical novel. Um, this one is going to take place in World War II, and it's also going to be in New York, and it's also going to have a relative of the Cutter family in it. But this one is going to take place in the um, Brooklyn Navy shipyards, as well as dabble in the Manhattan Project a little bit. So um, that one's still being written. Um, it'll probably come out... Um, I think spring of 2022. So in a little, in a couple of years. Okay. And opium and absinthe that's out right now. So people can go, can go check that out. And where can people find you? Um, I would look at your website. You have a, got a lot of great information in there. So that's probably the best yeah. place to find you. So my website, LydiaKang.com. Um, I'm also, I'm on Instagram a lot. So you can find me on Instagram, Lydia Kang. Um, and on Twitter is Lydia Y Kang. 
but come follow me on Instagram. You can sort of get inside my mind and see all the different things that I'm sort of looking at and observing and cooking because I, I cook a lot too. <laughs> I'm always hungry. I put food in every single one of my books because food is like one of, it's like basically the most memorable thing and almost everything I read sometimes are the food, the food scenes. So gotta come find me online. Say hi. Yeah, right. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Lydia, for being on the uh, podcast. Really appreciate it. It was really nice talking to you about your, uh, about your books. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.